Good morning again. I got that figure for you. You guys gave $5,575 last year to Lottie Moon, which is awesome. So let's beat that this year. That being said, uh, getting to the the word of God this morning, please open up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. The title of the sermon is Jesus Fulfills All Scripture. And once you are at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, if you are able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Starting in verse 13, here's what the Word of God says. It says, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning and we pray that you would be with us as we dive into your word. This is such an important passage of scripture. So much is here and yet so much of it gets missed. It's actually one of the deepest passages probably I've ever had to preach before. And I'm thankful for it. And so I pray, Lord, you won't let me mess it up. I pray, God, that all of us would just have hearts that are ready to hear and ears or ears ready to hear and hearts that are ready to receive your word, Lord, and that we would be changed by your word, that we would be more like Jesus because of your word, that we would marvel at you more. We pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they would hear your word and be saved. And we pray in everything you would be glorified. Lord, we just pray all this to you, God Almighty, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, I'm assuming we all know what a jigsaw puzzle is. You know, a jigsaw puzzle, you got this picture, it's broken up into a bunch of pieces, and then you have to put it back together in just the right way, and then you can see the picture. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a double-sided puzzle? You probably have. If you haven't, you might be saying, okay, what is a double-sided puzzle? It's a puzzle where when you put it together, you see the picture, but if you were to set it on a glass table and then crawl under the table and look up at the bottom side, there's another picture. Mind blown, right? And so what it means is each piece, when you're looking at that top picture, it actually represents more than what you're just seeing there. Well, I bring this up because it makes me think of our text this morning. In fact, I'm taking this comparison from uh, the biblical commentator Douglas Sean O'Donnell because he's right. The double-sided puzzle is exactly what we're seeing in our text. 
When you piece the Old Testament together, you have this beautiful picture of the history of Israel, the salvation of Israel. You have the election of Israel. You have the redemption of Israel through the Exodus. You have the giving of the covenant. You have the inheriting of the land. You've got the building of the temple. You have the giving of the the Davidic kings or the establishment of them. You have the exile, but then you have the restoration. When they all come back to, well, when a lot of them come back to Israel, it's a beautiful picture of what God does through his people throughout history. Okay, that's what you see on the top side of the puzzle. But if you were to crawl underneath that table and look through the glass, then on the other side, you're seeing one giant picture of Jesus Christ. And that's what people often don't realize. It all points to him. On the one hand, everything on the top side of the picture is true. The Old Testament is all those things I mentioned. But on the other hand, it does all ultimately mean Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to see this morning. The point of the text is this, for our note takers out there, is that Jesus is both the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture. It's not just that he fulfills Scripture. He embodies it. He is both the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture. Now, how does Matthew show us this? He's going to show it in three acts, okay, three acts within this text. First is the sojourn to Egypt. Second is the slaughter of the innocents. Third is the settling in Nazareth. So, sojourn to Egypt, slaughter of the innocents, and settling in Nazareth. And it's in these three acts that we will see that Jesus is both the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture, Now, as we continue with Matthew's gospel, we are going to jump in pretty quickly because there's a lot of good stuff here, but I do need to remind us just where we're at real quick. Chapters one and two are all about two questions concerning our Lord, who and where. In other words, first, who is he? Chapter one showed us, it answered, it told us he is the Messiah because he is the descendant of King David, okay? He's a descendant of David through Mary, Physically, but he inherits the royal line of David through his adopted father, Joseph. So that's first who he is. He's the Messiah. But second, chapter 1 also tells us he's the son of God. Because he had no human father, but instead he is God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, added humanity to himself as the Holy Spirit conceived his flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So that's who Jesus is. And the one person, you have God and you have man. And that's important because when you read the Old Testament and its predictions about the Messiah, sometimes he's described as a man. Sometimes he's described as one whose origin is from eternity, one who walks on the clouds, one who is called God is with us, one who is eternal father. That's God. So how could this one person be both God and man? Chapter one shows us in Jesus, that's exactly what we're supposed to expect, a Messiah who's both God and man. So that's the question of who. The next question is where, geographically speaking, where does he come from? And that's what we see in the chapter we're in now. First half of the chapter, the prophet Micah made it very clear. He would be born in Bethlehem, okay? That's what we see there. He would be born in Bethlehem. And so what we saw were some magi, some astrologers from the east. They show up because they thought they saw what they thought was a star, right? They saw what they thought was a star is what I meant to say. And they knew that whatever they saw announced the birth of the king of the Jews. So they show up to Jerusalem and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Well, there was a fake king of the Jews, King Herod. And he hears this and he immediately feels threatened because he was a paranoid and violent man. All he cared about was keeping his power. So he assembles all the religious experts who know the Old Testament backward and forward. He asks them if the Messiah was going to be born, where is he going to be born? And they said, Micah 5 too, Bethlehem. 
So Herod then goes to the wise men and tricks them and tells them, hey, if he is born, he will be in Bethlehem, just five miles from here. Go check it out for me. And if he is there, please come back and tell me because I want to worship him too, right? But we all know that Herod doesn't mean a word he's saying there. So they go to Bethlehem, the Magi, they find him. The king of the Jews has indeed been born. And so they worship him and they give him some really expensive gifts, But then an angel warns them in a dream, do not go back to Herod because he means to kill this child. So the Magi leave and they go back to their own country. That is pretty much where we left off last time. But with all of that said, we now come to the second half of chapter 2 and there's actually more to this question of where. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, even though he's born in Bethlehem, he will not be raised in Bethlehem. Instead, he's going to be raised way up north in Galilee, specifically in a little backwater town called Nazareth. And that is going to throw a lot of people off in his day. They were expecting a Messiah born in Bethlehem, reigning in Jerusalem. Well, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's going to subvert a lot of those other expectations. So that poses two more questions about the where when it comes to the Messiah. First, How does the Messiah who's born in Bethlehem end up 70 miles north of Nazareth? Why does he end up being raised there? And then second, so how does he get there? And then second, why? Like, why why does it go down this way? Why does God have it set up this way? Well, Matthew answers both those questions for us by using three scriptures at the end of the three acts. Okay, so you got the three acts, and each of them ends with a scripture. And so by doing it this way, Matthew is going to prove to us that Jesus is both the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture. So let's take a look at the first act, the sojourn to Egypt. Okay? And to help you a little bit with structure here, the third and the first act are set up exactly the same way. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream, tells him to do something. Joseph does it, and then Matthew gives us a Scripture explaining why it happened this way. Okay? So we'll see this first in verses 13 through 15. Let's take a look. Look at the first part of verse 13. It says, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Okay? So the first thing you need to notice is the words, after they were gone. After who was gone? Well, that's why I gave us the review of the first half of the chapter. After the Magi were gone. Okay? So the Magi were warned, don't go back to Herod, go home. So they start heading home. After that, okay, after this big celebration, now they're on their way home, okay, now God is going to send an angel to speak to Joseph, to pay a visit to Jesus' adopted dad. Now, the rest of verse 13 tells us what the angel says. He says this, he says, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Now, you can tell there is some danger and some urgency to this announcement. There's no time to spare, Joseph. Jerusalem is only five miles from Bethlehem. As soon as Herod snaps, he can have soldiers to Bethlehem in less than two hours. That's how much of a time crunch we're in here. Okay, so Joseph, you need to move. You need to move now. Now, I think very few of us in comfortable America have probably ever been in a situation like this. I mean, this is life and death. You have a paranoid tyrant living just five miles away. And the one person he wants to kill more than anybody else is a potential rival. So could you imagine the small child that you are raising, this baby, is the rival in the mind of this tyrant who kills people like it's a bodily function? I mean, that's what Joseph has to deal with here. You're poor. You have little means. You have no societal power. This guy's got all of that. 
and he's coming for you. That's the life of Joseph right now. When God chose him to take care of the child Messiah and his mother, Joseph likely had no idea it was going to mean all of this. But the good news is God was with him. God sends this angel to warn him, and the angel tells him God's plan. Go to Egypt. Now, if I were Joseph, I might be thinking, why do I have to go to Egypt? Couldn't the God who's powerful enough to create the flesh of the Messiah in the womb of my virgin wife, couldn't that God just wipe Herod out? Isn't this the God that I read of in the Old Testament who through Elijah rained fire down on the soldiers of a corrupt king? Can't God just take Herod and his soldiers down? Why do I have to run? This is the Messiah. Why won't God do bigger things than he's done in the past? Well, listen, God has a reason for everything he does. If God responded to this threat in any other way than what our text shows us, then Jesus would not be the embodiment and fulfillment of scripture. That's why it's going to happen this way. So, for now, I just want us to step into Joseph's world and try to imagine the scenario. God gives him this important task, okay, caring for the child Messiah. And what this means is this means I have to raise him, I have to protect him. And what that means is that life is not going to go according to Joseph's plans. And I think there's something for us to learn from that before we move on. Life is not always going to go according to your plans. Sometimes, You will come off an amazing and encouraging moment like he did with the wise men, you know, gifting them and worshiping Jesus and all that type of stuff. I mean, that you would be at a high, an emotional high. But then that very night, your world could be shattered and you have a hard choice to make in that moment. And sometimes you don't have time to think and pray about it. Sometimes you just got to get up and do something without delay. That's what we're seeing with Joseph. For him, it meant waking up his family, taking what they could grab with only a few minutes to spare, and leave his own country to go to a foreign land. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine somebody wants to kill you or someone you love, and so an angel tells you, look, you got five minutes, grab what you can, throw it in your car, you're driving to Peru. And you're going to stay there for some indefinite period of time, not going to tell you how long. That's pretty much what's happening to Joseph here. Not an easy, not an easy situation he's in. In his case, the angel's telling him, you're going to stay there until I tell you. Well, when's that going to be? He doesn't tell him, right? It's just until I tell you. It could be a while. Build a life when you're there. But do understand, at some point, I am going to come to you and tell you that you can come back. Now, the interesting thing is Joseph has no time to think about this, right? The threat is imminent. He only has time to decide whether or not he's going to obey. And when we look at the text, he obeys. And I just want to throw this exhortation out there before we look at his obedience. Whenever we are dealing with something that God directly commands, there is no room for our modern and mushy sentimentality where we say, you know what, I need to pray about this and seek God's will and discern what his will is, what he wants me to do. If he commanded it, that's his will for you. There's no, let me pray to see if he wants me to obey what he commanded me. You see how backward that is, right? So when it's something that is directly commanded, we just do it. That's his will. And we see that with Joseph. (laughs) You know, Joseph gets it. He's commanded to do this, and he immediately obeys. Look at verse 14. It says this. It says, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. So he did exactly as he was told. He's entirely in the will of God at this point. And it tells us that he took the child and his mother, quote, during the night, end quote. Now think about that. When do you think he received his dream? At night, when he's asleep. And when does he then obey? That same night. This is immediate obedience. Immediate. 
And of course, the cover of darkness will help as well to, to get out of Bethlehem unnoticed. But if you notice, he obeys immediately. He doesn't negotiate with God and say he needs more time. In fact, he understands there's no priority in his life more important than protecting this baby. All of Joseph's personal goals and ambitions take a back seat to that. So when that became the issue, when the child was in danger, Joseph dropped everything and did what he had to do in order to keep him safe. And I do wonder if we have the same resolve. Like Joseph, we all got our own goals. We have our own priorities. But I do hope that they all take a back seat to the kingdom. Because a little later in Matthew, Jesus is going to say, seek first the kingdom. And everything else will be provided. And so I pray that's how we see our life. But anyway, Joseph and the family, they flee to Egypt. And the question of why Egypt, it makes sense. It makes sense for a lot of reasons. First, it's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Second, there is a huge Jewish population there. In the city of Alexandria alone, the ancient Jewish philosopher Philo, who lived there, said there was a million Jews there. And with the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that they got, which were worth a lot, the family could afford to live. And so being in a familiar Jewish community, they would have social safety there. They'd be far away from Herod. So Egypt makes sense. But listen, if they did go to Alexandria, that's a 460-mile trip, okay, on foot. On foot, that would probably take two months. Now, there are other places in Egypt that are closer that also have a Jewish population, and he could have done that. We don't know if it was Alexandria, but what I'm telling you is no matter what, this is going to be a multiple-week journey. You have a man with two vulnerable people traveling alone on foot, great distance. This was perilous. It wasn't easy. And I just say that to us to remind us that obedience to God often isn't easy. But a lot was at stake. So Joseph did what he was supposed to do. So at this point then, thus far, in Act 1, we see the angel deliver the message. We see Joseph obey the message. The last thing Matthew then gives us is an explanation of this. Why did God choose to do it this way? Why Egypt? Okay. Does the Old Testament anticipate this? Well, let's look at verse 15. In verse 15, Matthew writes this. He says, He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew does two things here for us. First, he tells us that Joseph's only going to stay in Egypt till Herod dies, and we'll see that in the third act. But far more important is the second thing we see Matthew doing here. He tells us this was anticipated by an Old Testament prophet. He says the prophet right? The Lord spoke through the prophet, which means when the prophet's right, it's God's word. The Lord speaks through a specific prophet. The prophet he has in mind is Hosea. He actually quotes the second part of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to quote the whole thing, and then we're going to talk about this a bit. Here's what Hosea 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay? So this is talking about Israel, <clears throat> Now, of course, Matthew quoted only the end of that, the second half. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So if you are an uncareful reader and you're not going to check out the citation, you would think that Matthew is telling you that Hosea predicted in the future that God's son, the Messiah, would come out of Egypt. But that's not what Hosea was doing. That's not what he was doing. This was not actually a prediction about the Messiah. And Matthew's Jewish audience would read this and know that. Because they would know that's not what Hosea is getting at. Instead, Hosea is not looking forward. He's looking backward. He's looking back to the foundation of Israel at the Exodus. 
In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, look what God says. He tells Moses that you need to say this. He says, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. You catch that? In the first century, Jews would say, yeah, God has a son. It's Israel. Okay? Because that's coming out of the Old Testament. And so... As God was delivering Israel, the nation, from Egypt, way back in the Exodus, he called Israel corporately as his firstborn son. The Exodus itself was God's adoption of Israel as his son. So then you fast forward from that formative event in Israel's history. You fast forward 700 years to the time of Hosea, right? And Hosea was looking back on this. He's looking back on this. He's not looking forward. He's looking back, and he's reminding Israel in his time of their history. He's saying, don't forget our history. God called us out of Egypt. Israel, we as a nation are corporately the son of God. God adopted us. We're his son. He called us out of Egypt. And then what the rest of chapter 11 shows is they've been a bad son, They've been a bad son. Despite the fact that God called us out of Egypt as his son, we rebelled against him. Now he's going to send us into exile, into Assyria. That's what's happening in that part of Hosea. Okay? That's what's going on. So if that is what Hosea the prophet was writing about, then how can Matthew say Hosea's line, out of Egypt I called my son, how could that actually apply to Jesus? This goes back to what I've been telling you for a couple sermons now. Jesus doesn't merely fulfill predictions about him. I mean, he does. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. But more than that, what we see is that Jesus fulfills the story of Scripture itself. He's the embodiment of Scripture, not just the fulfiller of predictions. One of the biggest stories in the Old Testament is the story of Israel, of God's chosen people. God consistently, what he does is he takes people and events in history and he makes them into a prophetic pattern that will repeat sometimes multiple times until it gets to the final time, which is the Messiah. This is called typology. I know it's one of those $100 words, okay? but typology is a pretty easy concept once you get it. You have a type, which is the pattern. So take Israel. God creates Israel. He runs their whole history. He has their history go a certain way. That's a type. It's painting a picture of something he's going to do later. What it's pointing to is called the anti-type. So Israel would be the type. Messiah would be the anti-type. So that means whatever happens in Israel's history, in some way it's going to tell you something that's going to happen in the life of the Messiah. That's what's going on here. And I I hope that's not too complicated because the scripture does this all the time. And I don't know an easier way to to explain it, okay? Now, I want to kind of help us see this even a little more with other Old Testament passages. What's really interesting is Isaiah the prophet helps us see this clearer. Starting in Isaiah chapter 42, God promises he will send his servant, the servant of the Lord. The servant is said to be God's vehicle for saving the nations. So then you ask the question, who is the servant of the Lord? Well, we get a clear answer in Isaiah 44, 1. Look what it says. It says, and now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, who I've chosen. So who's the servant of the Lord? Israel, right? Pretty clear. Okay, Israel itself is the servant of the Lord. But if you keep reading, God does something very interesting in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5. Look what it says. It says, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Did you catch that? 
Did you catch what's happening there? Chapter 42, the servants Israel. Chapter 49, the servants an individual that saves Israel. But both are the servant of the Lord. Okay? You have the corporate servant, Israel. They fail, as Hosea makes clear. But then God raises the perfect individual servant, a perfect, indi- a perfect Israelite who represents the whole nation. That's the Messiah. And he comes and redeems Israel. How does he do it? The final part of the servant songs in Isaiah is chapter 53, something many of us know. What does it tell us happens to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53? He will be crushed for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquity. God will make him a sacrificial offering for our sins so that we could be justified. That is how the individual servant saves the corporate servant and saves the world. Okay, it's amazing. So when you put this all together, then Israel is God's servant to save the nations. But the Messiah is also God's servant to save the nations. Israel is called God's son and the Messiah is called God's son. In fact, besides just Israel being called God's son, the kings of David, Psalm chapter two, the sons of David, when they sit on the throne, are also adopted and called God's son. Okay, so Israel and the sons of David are God's sons by adoption. But Jesus is the son by nature because he has always been the eternal son of God, right? So think about this. Israel itself and the sons of David all form that type that I was talking about, that pattern. And it all points to Jesus. What they show in a figurative sense, Jesus is in a literal sense. They're figuratively sons. Jesus is the son, right? They're the servant, but Jesus is the servant. So if Israel, as God's son, is the servant of the Lord, yet the Messiah is also called the servant of the Lord, then you would expect the history of Israel to paint the picture of what would happen in the life of the Messiah. It's a pattern itself that will literally be fulfilled by Jesus. Okay, It will literally be fulfilled by him. So think about this. Israel, when it was an infant nation of only 75 people in the book of Genesis, there was danger from the Holy Land. Where did they flee? Egypt. Right? When they were an infant nation, they flee down to Egypt. Okay? And then what happens during the Exodus? They are called out of Egypt. What happened to Jesus? Danger in the Holy Land. And as a baby, he flees to Egypt. But then eventually, out of Egypt, I call my son. Just as Israel, the firstborn, was called out of Egypt, and they first had to flee to Egypt, God's real son, the Messiah, flees to Egypt and then is called out of Egypt. That is how Matthew is using Hosea. And this will become obvious because this is how Matthew's going to use Jeremiah in the second part of this, and also in the third part. He's using the Old Testament this way. And this is what we saw in chapter 1 when he used Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, about the virgin birth. On one hand, it was fulfilled in a very unremarkable way in Isaiah's lifetime, but it was fulfilled in a literal way. Okay, it was a type back then, but then the, the full thing it pointed to is what happened with Jesus. A virgin literally became present, uh, pregnant, and the child is literally God with us. Same kind of thing happening. So Matthew's point here is to answer the question of how Jesus ends up out of Bethlehem. Okay, how does he leave Bethlehem? Well, first he had to go to Egypt. Why did he have to go to Egypt? Because God created Israel as a type of the Messiah, and their history tells us things about the Messiah, and Israel came out of Egypt. Therefore, the Messiah must come out of Egypt. Okay, so we should expect this in the life of the Messiah. 
They both are the servant of the Lord, corporate and individual, and therefore the individual must repeat the pattern of the corporate. But Jesus has to do it in a way with no sin since he's to save them from their sin as well as the nations. That's what's going on here. And look, what I'm about to say, I'm probably going to repeat a lot of times as we're going through the beginning of Matthew, but this isn't the only time Matthew's going to show us this. I want those of you who know the scripture to really think about Israel's early history. What happens? Israel goes to Egypt. They come out of Egypt, right? They go through the Red Sea, which Paul says is, so they come out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, which Paul says is like being baptized into the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness for how many years? 40. How many times do they fail in the wilderness and get judged by God? Three times. And then at the end of that 40 years, you get Deuteronomy where on a mountain, Moses explains the law to them in a more full way. Look what Matthew's going to present to us about Jesus. Out of Egypt, he calls his son. Okay, after this, the very next thing we see is John the Baptist, and Jesus gets baptized. Right after the baptism, we see him in the wilderness for 40 days, where he doesn't fail three times, but he passes three major temptations. And then the very next thing is the Sermon on the Mount, where he's explaining the law to his people. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is fulfilling Israel's history, but in a perfect way. He is the individual servant that saves the failed corporate servant, and therefore his pattern must follow theirs. That is how the scripture is being used here, and it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing, okay? And again, I told you, we're going to see Matthew do this a lot. Now, at this point, I want to come down a little bit. We're done with the first act. Reminding us what we see, Joseph was warned in a dream, go to Egypt, he obeyed. The reasons given to us, this this all anticipates the Messiah. He's got to fulfill the patterns that God established with Israel in the Old Testament. And again, that proves Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of the scriptures. Okay, Israel's on the top of the puzzle, but who's on the bottom? Jesus, it all points to him. Well, now we're going to move to the second act, and we're going to see even more of this. You're going to see more Jesus-Israel stuff, and then as we move on, you're going to see Jesus-Moses stuff. It's amazing. So let's turn to the slaughter of the innocents. Let's look at verse 16. It tells us this. It says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Okay, so last time I mentioned you have three possible responses to Jesus. Saving faith, fearful rage, and indifference. Right here with Herod, we're seeing what fearful rage looks like. He responds with malice and violence to try to kill the baby Messiah. Now Herod's assuming he's been tricked or outwitted by the Magi. In reality, they were ready to help them. They just or help him. They just left because, you know, an angel told them to. By the time Herod realizes they're not coming back, it says he flew into a rage. Which it, that's a good translation. The Greek literally means he was exceedingly filled with fuming anger. Okay, so just picture like if he was a cartoon, smoke would be coming out of his ears and he would be red and he was exceedingly filled with this. This is very much a contrast to the Magi. Back in verse 10, it tells us in the Greek, they rejoiced with great rejoicing at the thought of Jesus, whereas Herod, he rages with great rage at the thought of Jesus. Those are two radically different responses, different responses between the saved and the damned. Okay? So Herod, being the damned, he sends his soldiers to do his dirty work and kill all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. And based on population estimates from that time, it probably would have been about 20 kids that ended up being murdered because of this guy's paranoia. 
Now, based on what the Magi told him about the appearance of the star, Herod picked a, a wider range, two years, just to make sure if the Messiah is still there, he would be killed. Now, the, the interesting thing is, like, this totally fits with what we know of Herod. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, I told you a little bit about this last time, he tells us that near the end of Herod's life, he killed his wife, his mother-in-law, three of his sons. He killed half of the Sanhedrin. That's like the Jewish religious rulers of, of Jerusalem. And then on his death, he had it ordered that all the noble or rich people of Jerusalem were to be gathered in the square and killed on the moment of his death. death. That way, all of Israel has to worship or uh, has to mourn and weep the day he dies. Now, fortunately, that order wasn't carried out. I mean, once he's dead, who's going to listen to him? You know, but just that shows you how crazy he was. And in fact, another interesting thing is 400 years later, a Roman historian named Marcobius tells us that Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar of Rome, was aware of the killing of the two-year-olds and under. That around the same time Herod did this, he also killed one of his sons. And Caesar Augustus heard this and came up with the famous ancient pun that it's, he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And that's even funnier in Greek because pig is hus and son is huyas. So he's like, I'd rather be Herod's hus than huyas. You know, it's like, ah, oh, that's a good one, Caesar. But anyhow, that's because Herod was nuts. And even Caesar Augustus knew he was nuts. And so what we're reading in the text definitely matches the man. Okay, so Herod commits this atrocity by slaughtering these innocent children. And then in verse 17, Matthew again tells us, hey, this is something that we should expect because of Scripture. It fits the pattern of scripture. Look at verse 17. He says, then what was spoken through the prophet or through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. So now he's naming the specific prophet, Jeremiah. And in verse 18, he's going to quote Jeremiah. He says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now, this quote comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And again, if we're uncareful in our reading, at first glance, we might be thinking, oh, Jeremiah's predicting in the future that mothers in Israel are going to weep because their kids are going to get murdered in the day of the Messiah. And Rachel's like the this, this symbol representing those, those Jewish mothers. But that's actually not what's happening here. If you look at the whole chapter in Jeremiah, it's just like Hosea. This is actually looking back to explain something going on in Jeremiah's own day, which is going to create this typology or pattern and repeat fulfillments. Okay, So Jeremiah is looking backward to the foundation of Israel a little earlier than, than Hosea did. According to Genesis chapter 30, 35, verse 19, Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, she died near Bethlehem giving birth to Benjamin. Now, clearly she was weeping because she named him originally Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. She was sorrowful and crying over him. Now, after she dies, I'm pretty sure Jacob didn't want to make her mad while she was dying. He's like, he's not going to be named son of my sorrow. And so he renames him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. But my point is, Rachel dies, and as she's dying, she's weeping for one of her children. Okay? Now, she dies near Bethlehem at Ramah, or Ramah according to Genesis chapter 35, verse 19. Okay? So here's what's happening. Okay? Jeremiah is calling his audience back to that original event as a picture of what's happening in Jeremiah's day. Israel rebelled against God for so long that God brought the Babylonians in as judgment to conquer them. Many sons of Israel died. And then those who didn't die were exiled. They were deported off in the exile to Babylon. Okay? 
but where were the exiles gathered before they went off to Babylon? Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1 says Ramah. And Jeremiah was there. So he's like, man, we're standing in the same place where Rachel died and was weeping for Benjamin. Mothers of Israel are weeping for their dead sons now and weeping for the fact that we're going into exile, right? So again, Jeremiah sees what happened early in Israel's history, looks at the plot of land he's standing on, says, ah, that's a type for what's happening in our own day. And then in Jeremiah's day, it's 600 years before Christ. Okay, they're dragged off into exile. And Jeremiah likened it to Rachel, the most beloved mother of Israel's sons, weeping because her children are no more. The point is Rachel dying in Ramah and being sorrowful over her son becomes this type. It becomes this pattern that repeats itself again. First time with Jeremiah's generation, but in a more literal way, a final time when you have the slaughter of innocents in actual Bethlehem. And the very spot where Rachel cried, at least 20 kids killed and mothers in Israel weeping. That's what Matthew's showing us. So again, the pattern repeats. It's fulfilled again. These children were literally killed by a tyrant near the very place where Rachel died and where Israel was carried off into exile. But there's even more to it than this. I'd be remiss if I stopped there. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, is actually the only sad verse in all of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is probably one of the best chapters in the whole Old Testament. Okay, I want you to understand something. We are very spoiled with chapters and verses. We're able to find things very easy in the Bible. They didn't have chapter and verses back then. That was an invention in the 13th century by Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Back in the first century, they didn't have their scrolls divided into chapters and verses. So if you're pulling out a single sentence of scripture, you're understanding it in light of the big chunk that's around it. Okay, And the big chunk around this verse is the rest of Jeremiah 31, which is one of the happiest chapters in the whole Old Testament. One of the greatest exhibitions of good news in the Old Testament, right? So by Matthew quoting this one sad line out of Jeremiah 31, he's inviting his audience to think about the whole chapter, everything else that's around it. And the whole chapter, as I said, is good news. Even though the worst thing is happening, that we're being judged and sent into exile, God promises that the Jews will return. So he brings up Rachel weeping, and then the very next verse he gives a command. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 16, the next verse, look what God commands. It says, this is what the Lord says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return from the enemy's land. So God's saying, women of Israel, stop weeping. The children of Israel will return. And then you keep reading the rest of chapter 11, and it's the most glorious promises given in the entire Old Testament. Anybody know what important promise comes in Jeremiah 31? New covenant. The new covenant. I will make a new covenant. So not only will your people come back, but they, when they come back, there will be a new covenant better than the old. And then after he tells them about the new covenant, he then reassures them. He says, Israel, ethnic Israel will always be a nation before me, before God. He said the universe would have to be destroyed for Israel not to be my people. Okay, so he quotes the one sad verse, Matthew does, but it's calling their mind to everything else that said, yes, there's exile, but there's a return, and there's a new covenant, and there's salvation, right? Ultimate salvation. So in light of all of that, what then is Matthew saying here? What's he saying? First, 
A wicked king killing innocent babies near where Rachel died and near where Israel went into exile. That fulfills the pattern. That's the first thing he's telling us. Again, Jesus is like Israel. Just like Israel went into exile, he goes into exile into Egypt. And just like there was weeping over lost children, there's going to be weeping here over these lost children. But here's the thing. This one who goes into Egypt, this baby that escapes, he will return, which means there will be an end to the exile, just like Israel will return. And when this one returns, what does he bring? He brings what the rest of chapter 31 of Jeremiah tells us. He brings the new covenant. And it is the new covenant. That's how Israel will be saved, as well as how the rest of the nations will be saved right along with them. So what he's saying is, don't weep, mothers of Bethlehem. One of the babies was exiled rather than killed. Just like some were killed in Jeremiah's day and some were exiled, some were killed now, one was exiled. And he will return. And he will make everything right. He will bring the new covenant. He will bring the salvation of the world, which means he will bring the perfect age, which means he will bring the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, he even brings the restoration of the babies you have lost, but he will bring them back into a better world where there is no death. He will bring them back into a better covenant. One has escaped who will forever remove weeping from both Israel and the world. He is the one, Jesus is the one that brings us what Revelation 21.4 tells us, which is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There will be a day where those children will experience this. So don't weep. There's no need to weep too long over this. The baby who escaped is the one who's going to bring us that. So the days of weeping are numbered. Why? Because one child escaped. The Messiah escaped. Now, it is true the daughters of Jerusalem will weep for him when he's on the cross. We'll see that later in the Gospels. But but it's through the cross that he overcomes the world. That's how the new covenant comes. So again, it's all fulfilling what the Old Testament is telling us to expect. So what he's telling you is is mothers of Israel and mothers of the world stand fast for the perfect day is coming and it's coming through Jesus. That is what Matthew is doing with this verse. It's not a mere prediction and fulfillment. It's patterns and typology. Jesus, as the individual servant, follows the pattern of the corporate servant, as I keep saying. And so it shows us again and again that Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture. Think about it. Matthew has shown us that Christ is both Israel's exodus and Israel's exile. In these two verses, he first shows us he's the exodus, and then in the second act, he shows us he's the exile. Those are two very different things spread out over time. Furthermore, the first was salvation, the second was judgment. Yet in the person of Jesus, he is the exodus, for out of Egypt I called my son. But he's also the exile because Rachel weeps for her children. But even more, Jesus is the return from the exile, which again is a new exodus predicted in the Old Testament. And the reason Jesus could be these three different things in Israel's history that all happened at three different times is because God had Joseph take Jesus to Egypt. That's why it went down this way. That's why he can't just rain fire on Herod. It would ruin this all. Okay? It had to be this way. And I'm hoping you could see why it had to be this way. I hope you could see why this is so much better than God just killing Herod and his cronies. 
By doing it this way, God is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of Scripture. He's showing us that man can't make this stuff up. You you can't put this together like this. The Old Testament was written over a thousand-year period by over 30 authors from different walks of life, different educational levels, on different continents. Many of them did not know each other, and yet somehow what they wrote ends up through types and shadows. It ends up being embodied and fulfilled by this single person born at the right time in the right place to the right family. And he comes and he ties it all together in order to bring salvation to the world. Man cannot do that. Only God can make it work this way. So you could look at the top of the puzzle and see all of Israel's history and go at the bottom and see the the beautiful saving face of our Savior Jesus Christ. So loved ones, I, I hope even just with that, you're seeing why it is worth it to dive deep into scripture. Why we are not supposed to have this this simplistic fortune cookie faith. We're given the word of God so that we could dig deep and pull out the spiritual gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because we are wandering in this, this present evil age. And we need the treasures of scripture to be able to get by, to remind ourselves of the promises of God so that we could keep running in the race. We are encouraged to dig deep. I mean, Matthew wrote this in a way that encourages you to dig deep. We have to search the word to see this stuff again and again. Well, there's one more act to go. I'll try to go through it quickly, but there's a lot in this act as well, just like the other two. It's the same kind of stuff. So the angel visits Joseph. He gives him a command. Joseph obeys, just like in the first act. And then we get another scripture in a sense. This is going to fulfill scripture. So let's look at the final act, which has him settling in Nazareth. In verses 19 and 20, we see the message of the angel. It says this. It says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So earlier, the angel says, Stay in Egypt till I tell you. Now he tells him. (laughs) So he could go home now. But what's interesting is the way the angel says this. Only Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Yet notice the plural word, quote, those who intended to kill the child are dead. Why would he say those when it was just Herod? It's because he's wanting to throw us back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. It turns out that Matthew is not only presenting Jesus as a new Israel, but he's also presenting him as a new Moses. Check this out. Exodus chapter um, 4, verse 19 says this. It says, Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. Same exact wording in the Greek when you read the Greek Septuagint. Those who want you dead, they're, they're gone. Now think about this. Think about Moses, right? Think about what the Exodus tells us about Moses. When Moses was a baby, what happens? A tyrant, Pharaoh, has all the Hebrew baby boys killed. And so through divine providence, one of the boys escapes. And then later in life, that boy has to flee from the tyrant of Pharaoh because Pharaoh wants to kill him. And then after that, Pharaoh's dead. The exact same words the angel uses to Joseph here was used to Moses. Those who want you dead are dead. Go back. This is meant to make us connect Jesus with Moses. That's why the wording is the same. All those who wanted to kill Jesus, they're dead, just like all those who wanted to kill Moses were dead. For Moses, that means it's time for you to go back and deliver Israel from slavery to Egypt. For Jesus, it's time for him to go back to Israel and deliver us from a worse slavery, slavery to sin and death. Now, if you pay attention to the details, as far back as chapter 1, 
Matthew has actually been giving us hints that Moses himself, like Israel, is a type or shadow or pattern of the Messiah. Meaning, look at the key events in Moses' life and expect a later version of him that's better to happen to be the Messiah. Expect that stuff to happen to the Messiah. So the slaughter of the innocents in Exodus. Then you have the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, right? You have the escape from that. You have Jesus' escape from that. You have the fleeing from the land. You have the fleeing of the land. Then you have return after the death of the tyrant, all in order to free people from slavery. Do you think this is accidental? Do you think this is accidental? It's not. And we could even add more to this. When you look at the Jewish writings of the time, whether we're talking about Josephus or the Pseudepigrapha, these are all just things Jews were writing around the same time the New Testament was being written, and even rabbinical literature, they decided to expand the Moses story. And I'm not saying those expansions are true, but they're interesting. In the expansions, they say that a star announced the birth of Moses, and that's why the Pharaoh killed the babies. They then said an angel appeared to Moses' father, Amram, to encourage him to do what he's supposed to do. Okay, And then you have all the other stories. Stuff that does happen in the scripture, but if you notice, both the scriptural versions and the expanded versions, all of that happened in the life of Messiah. All of that happened in the life of Jesus. So Jesus matches what's in the Bible, but he also matches what people believed about Moses back then. So he fulfills everything Moses said and did. It becomes clear. And when you understand this, it's going to add extra significance to Moses' own prophecy about the Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we quote this a lot, but I think we missed two of the most important words. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Now, I could talk all day about this prophecy, but to keep it short, Moses didn't just say God will send you another prophet. What's the prophet going to be like? Prophet will be like me. In other words, Moses himself is creating a type or shadow. He's saying, I'm a type or shadow. Okay, he's going to be like me. Look, many prophets will come, Elijah, Hosea, all these guys. So how will you know that the prophet has come, the one who's the Messiah? Look at my life. Look at what happened in my life. Okay, I'm now a type. He will be a prophet like me. Then look at him. My life and his life are going to match. Okay, so the like me part of that prophecy is the part we never focus on, but it's huge and necessitates everything that Matthew's showing us. And that's why Matthew's showing it this way. He's presenting us with all the good stuff for this reason. This is why Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of the scripture. Think about this in our passage this morning. In one passage, we see Jesus as the new Israel and the new Moses. He is both Israel and the leader of Israel. We see him as both the exodus and the exile. We see him as both the salvation or the judgment. Why? Because we see him as the exile and the end of the exile. Okay? We see him as the old and new covenant. Yeah, that's right. He is also the old covenant. Because again, if he represents the first exodus, which then brings him the old covenant, but he also represents the return in the new exodus and the new covenant, again, both point to him. Okay? He's all of it. All of these different biblical earth-shaking events are summed up in one guy. The top of the puzzle is all of that. The bottom of the puzzle is one guy. Jesus Christ. Mind-blowing, right? I hope so. Hope I haven't lost you guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's mind-blowing stuff. And there's one more thing Matthew wants to show us. So we're not done yet. First, he has to show us how Jesus ends up in Nazareth and why he ends up in Nazareth. 
So let's do the how first, and then we'll do the why. The how is in verses 21, 22, and the first part of verse 23. Let's look at it. It says, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth. So again, we see Joseph obey. He goes back to Israel. But when he gets there, bad news. Herod's son, Archelaus, is ruling over the southern part of Israel. When Herod was alive, he had it all. But once he died, Rome was smart. They split it between his three sons. And the part that Bethlehem was in, yeah, he killed three sons, but he had three left. Okay, So he splits it between, Rome splits it between the three sons. And Archelaus is the one that was ruling the part that Bethlehem would be in. And Archelaus is as bad as Herod. Soon after he came into power, he killed 3,000 people just to show who's in charge. That's who this kind of guy is. He was so bad that 10 years later, in the year 6 AD, Rome finally said, we're done with you. They deposed him, and that's when they put a Roman governor to rule that area. That's why you get guys like Pontius Pilate. It's because of how bad this guy was. That Romans are like, all right, no more Herods in this part. We're sending a governor. Okay, And so it's all because of this guy. So Joseph... He gets there, he's like, his gut told him, Archelaus is bad news. The angel tells him, your gut is right. Don't go to Bethlehem, go north. Go to Galilee. And so that's where they go. And they go to Nazareth. And it kind of makes sense. One, it's outside of Archelaus' jurisdiction. And second, you know, there's something Matthew doesn't tell us that Luke tells us. Joseph and Mary, they grew up and they're from Nazareth. So, yeah, they were in Bethlehem because Caesar Caesar Augustus had a a census that forced them to go there, and they were going to resettle there. But now they're going to go back to their original stomping ground. Nazareth was this little ho-dunk, no-name place that had 500 people. That's where Jesus, the Savior of the world, will grow up. That is going to be a stumbling block for Jews when Jesus grows up and his ministry goes public. They can't deny the miracles. He's healing the sick. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's healing the lame. He's casting out demons. He's even raising the dead. But he's from Nazareth. How could the Messiah be from Nazareth? Well, Matthew gives us the how. He answers the question with the rest of verse 23. He says they moved to Nazareth, quote, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene, end quote. Now, this passage, for some people, is the hardest of this whole text because there is no Old Testament scripture that directly says he will be called a Nazarene. But here's the thing. That's not a problem if you look at it closely. Matthew's not quoting a single verse. He's not quoting a single prophet. In the first act, he says, as the Lord said through the prophet, it was a specific prophet, Hosea. In the second one, he tells us again, as the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah. What does he say here? Through the prophets, plural. That means this isn't a single verse that he's calling us to. Instead, he's saying, look, what I'm telling you is collectively the teaching of all the prophets. This is what they're telling us as a whole. So you don't have to find this verse in the Old Testament. Instead, you have to find the concept. Okay, and it really does make this a lot easier because people do all sorts of things to try to make this text fit a verse They'll try to say, oh, it's talking about a Nazarite vow, you know, because Nazarite and Nazareth sounds the same, so maybe Jesus is a new Samson. But Nazarene and Nazarite are not the same, and Jesus is nothing like Samson. And later, Matthew's going to make it clear that Jesus was not keeping a Nazarite vow because he drank wine and he touched corpses as he brought them back to life. So he's not a Nazarite. 
So then others will be like, all right, it has to be Isaiah 11.3 because that's where it says he will be the branch of Jesse, okay, which is a messianic title. And the word branch is Nazar in Hebrew. So if he's going to be a Nazar, the Nazar of Jesse, and he will be called a Nazarene. Therefore, it must all work. But even with the similarity of the words, how does him living in Nazareth prove that he's the branch or Nazar of, uh, of Jesse? How does it prove that? I don't think it does. Now, some people speculate that even though Nazareth was small, a lot of David's descendants lived there. Um, and I believe that because you have both Joseph and Mary living there, and they come from different Davidic lines. But Matthew's not telling us this. He's saying that him being a Nazarene is something to expect from the prophets as a whole, not a single clause from Isaiah. So the question is, what's going on? Well, just like some prophecies speak of the Messiah as a man and others speak of him as if he's God and therefore he's both, something similar happens with where the Messiah is from. On the one hand, he's from Bethlehem. It says that. Everyone knows that. But on the other hand, the prophets say that it seems as if he appears out of nowhere and he's a nobody, so you don't really know where he's from. Consider Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, one of the most important and clear messianic passages of the Old Testament. It says, he grew up, speaking of Jesus, it says he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Okay, we didn't value him. So that phrase, he's like a root out of dry ground, that's an idiom or a figure of speech that means he's a nobody. He comes from nowhere. It just looks like a weed that sprouts up somewhere. He's got no majesty. He doesn't look like a king. So we, as Israel, Isaiah is saying, we didn't value him. And so that means even though he is born the God-man in Bethlehem, and even though the government will rest on his shoulders, as Isaiah says earlier, Isaiah at the same time is telling us that he comes from nowhere. And he doesn't look like a king. Well, which is it? Both. Both are true. And both get worked out in the fact that he comes two times. Nobody's going to deny he looks like a king when he comes walking on the clouds and every tongue confesses and every knee bows. Okay, But the first time, he looked like a nobody from a nobody place. Now, it's worth asking, was this confusion that I'm talking about, he'll be from Bethlehem, but we don't know where he's from, was that confusion normal in the first century? Yeah, John, the gospel of John, shows us that perfectly. Look at John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42. You got this crowd. It says, others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? Okay, so check. You know, right there, the crowd seems to understand he has to come from Bethlehem. The same crowd, a few verses earlier, in the same chapter, shows this confusion, though. Some in the crowd, he's from Bethlehem. What about others in the crowd? They say this. It says, some people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? But we know where this man's from. When Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. That's the same crowd. The same crowd. So hold on one second. Some in the crowd, he must be from Bethlehem. Others in the crowd, no, no, nobody's going to know where he's from. Why are two different, I guess, parties saying this? Because the Old Testament anticipates both. Both of them are right. And that's Matthew's point. 
by showing us that he's born in Bethlehem, it covers the first prophetic expectation. But then by having him move to Nazareth, it shows us the second. That he would be like a root out of dry ground and nobody from a nobody place. Nobody would expect him to be the Messiah if he's coming from a nobody place like Nazareth. I mean, consider the apostles even. When Philip first goes and tells Nathaniel about Jesus, we all know the famous line. Okay, Nathaniel responds like everybody else would in John 1.46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Philip says, come and see. And then, Philip, and then he does come and see, and he realizes, oh, wow, this is the Messiah. Okay, Jesus is who, who Philip was saying he was. And what Matthew's telling us is Nathaniel should have expected this all along, that something good can come out of Nazareth, right? The prophets tell us he's going to look like a nobody. What better way of saying it in the first century than saying he'll be from Nazareth? Okay, it's not a quoting of a text. He's just saying, look, they knew he'd be called a Nazarene because in our context, that is the best way to say nobody. Today, it'd be like saying, dude, he's from Barstow. Sorry if, <laughs> sorry if you're from Barstow. But anyhow... We're the real high desert. No, anyhow, so <laughs> we're like Capernaum. But, and Jerusalem would look down on both of us. But anyhow, um, nobody would ever expect the Messiah to be from, from Nazareth. That's the point. He's going to be called a nobody. That's what the prophets are telling us. And that's how you would say it in that time. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes, this is what the prophets told us to expect. So Matthew uses this fact as a point to show us that Jesus is actually fulfilling what multiple Old Testament prophets were telling us to expect. So, with that, that includes all three acts. And I hope that it's abundantly clear that Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of the Scripture. All these huge Old Testament people and events, even though they seem disconnected, they all point to him and they're all tied together in him. Moses is not Israel and the exile is not the exodus. Moses is not the prophet like himself because he would be himself. No, Moses is Moses and he's not the same as the prophet like himself. The individual servant of the Lord is not the corporate servant of the Lord. And yet Jesus is all of these things all at the same time. He fulfills all of them. Again, the bottom of the puzzle is all his face. So yes, he is the embodiment and fulfillment of the scripture. And so it's my prayer that with this, if you've been tracking with it the whole time, that you're increasingly becoming more and more convinced of what your pastors tell you all the time, that all scripture, the whole volume of it, is all about Christ. It all points to him. It's a realization that becomes stronger and stronger in my mind the more I read scripture. And a text like this, man, this is like, there's no going back to not thinking it's all about him after seeing this. So that's what this is all about. What about the application? Can you apply this? Yeah, kind of. The application is, is just that. Look for Christ in the scriptures. In all of them, meditate on how each text points to him and what it tells you about him. Then marvel at him. I'm marveling at him because of this. Marvel at him. And where you can imitate him, imitate him. You want to know how to apply this text? Believe it. Believe every word of it. And if you do, your faith should be strengthened. Every single word of the Bible is true. Every word of our text, just like every other word of the Bible, proves that our Savior really is our Savior. So believe it. My question is, do you believe it? Well, if you do, then live like you believe it. And if you live like you believe it, then Jesus comes first, not our ambitions. Like Joseph, you'll obey even when it's hard, because a lot of times it's going to be hard. But what helps us obey? What helps us get there? 
Again, it's believing the gospel, believing it more and more, believing the good news of Jesus Christ, not just at the surface level. The scripture gives it to us at deeper and deeper levels. So keep diving deeper, believe it more, dig more into the word. And what will happen is it will strengthen your faith the more and more you see Jesus in the scriptures. It will convince you more and more that this is not made up. This is real. And my salvation is real because my savior is real. And he not only fulfills predictions, he fulfills the whole thing. That's how we apply this. We then have a strength in faith, and then we just go on and live in light of that faith. So loved ones, let's believe it. Let's believe it with everything we've got, and let's live accordingly. And if there's any unbelievers here, let me just make this real simple. Jesus is exactly who this text says he is, right? And why was he sent? He was sent, as I alluded to earlier, to die in our place, as Isaiah 53 says, to pay our penalty. We have all sinned. We've all gone astray. And as a result, we all deserve to be judged eternally by the wrath of God. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into his own creation as the God-man to earn the righteousness we failed to earn and then to pay our penalty in our place on the cross. He died, he rose on the third day, and the whole storyline of scripture points to this, it anticipates this. So the question is, will you believe it? Will you turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus in faith and believe and be saved? If you turn away from your sins and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So don't walk out of here still in your damnation. We would rather you repent and believe and come to the Lord in his salvation. With that, we're going to pray. And then I'll quickly give a communion warning, and then we'll have the worship team uh, lead us in one more song, and then uh, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you, Lord, for what you show us in this. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that one thing you'll teach us in this is to resist laziness when we read the word, because it'd be so easy to read this and then assume that that Matthew's quoting these prophets as if Jesus is simply fulfilling predictions, but that's not what what you were getting at with this. And so give us a heart to always stop and look at the Old Testament references and to dig and find out what's going on. Because every time we do, when we get to the bottom of that digging, we're only gonna see one face and it's yours, Lord Jesus. And then we're gonna love you more. So please put that in our hearts. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, we pray that uh, you would bring them to you today and they would be saved. And we just pray all this to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.